lost cows were nothing new to the ranchers along the Mogollon Rim. James E. Shelley, for example, probably thought little about taking off on horseback to search for the livestock that had gone missing from his property. Head down, the Mormon rancher kept his horse at a very slow pace as he followed the crisp prints of hooves in the dirt and mud. This routine part of life of mid-19th century cow herding was suddenly interrupted when Shelley's hat was knocked from his head. Confused, he looked up to see a sight that was at first strange, followed by horrifying. The object that had knocked his hat off was a cowboy boot dangling in the air. Next to it was another boot. Each of them were connected to a leg, which in turn were connected to the torso of a man strung across a large pine branch. Worse yet, he wasn't alone. Two more men were hung up beside him, their faces showing several days' worth of decomposition. Shelley instantly forgot about his cows. Instead, he turned his horse back around and rode hard toward his hometown of Heber to report that Pleasant Valley had claimed three more victims. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 126, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 7, Frontier Justice. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you didn't miss me too much as I took a week off to be with a lot of family that was in town over the past weekend. But it turns out that there was one podcast-related item to come out of this gathering. My father took the time to tell me that he had a small correction for something I said during this recent series on the Pleasant Valley War. I had made the comment during one of these episodes that I had never been to Young, the heart of Pleasant Valley, and he let me know that that was simply not true. Apparently, one of the times when we went camping along Canyon Creek as a family years ago, we drove the gravel road down to Young and Mac, something that I was simply too young, see what I did there, to remember. And then he asked if that was enough to get him another on-the-air shout-out for the correction. Well, Dad... Here's your shout-out. I hope it was everything you wanted. Alright, with that out of the way, we should dive right back into our story. It's been a week, so if you don't remember exactly where we are, here's the summation. After the Tewksbury's killed two men, ostensibly out searching for the missing Mart Blemons, the Graham faction had retaliated by burning down the cabin where this had occurred. There was another engagement in the mountains where the Tewksbury's had holed up and possibly in response to that, young Billy Graham had been killed. His family had then retaliated by killing John Tewksbury and William Jacobs and putting the Tewksbury cabin under siege. There was also a small altercation between the Tewksbury's and Graham partisans in mid-September 1887, a relatively minor shootout that still managed to kill a man. So you can see now that the circle of violence just keeps spinning. But all the killing and general lawlessness had attracted the attention of, well, the law. Sheriff Bill Movenon had left Prescott on September 10, 1887, determined to now stop the war once and for all and arrest anyone who participated. In his pocket, he carried a warrant specifically for Johnny Graham, 
Though it's kind of unclear what he was arresting him for and why only Johnny Graham. Don't get me wrong, the Grahams were involved with bad people and Johnny was likely guilty of something, but you can say that about just about everyone, including the Tewksbury side. In this case, it does feel like Mulvenon just kind of drew a name out of a hat. This second excursion to Pleasant Valley was hampered by one of the wettest months ever, which made crossing the Verde River a no-go. Just as an example of what kind of weather we are talking about, Prescott measured four inches of rain during the month of September 1887, while Fort McDowell measured eight. Finally, though, the skies cleared and Mulvenon made it to Payson, where he conferred with the local justice of the peace while his posse started to take shape. The number of men in this posse is variable depending on which source you're reading, but it appears that he had maybe over 20 men and maybe higher than 25. Not only did he have the men he had brought from Prescott, but he again was joined by others coming in from Flagstaff. But tellingly, among this group were two of the brothers of William Jacobs, the Tewksbury ally that had been killed alongside John Tewksbury and left to the Hogs. Also said to be among this group was staunch Tewksbury partisans like George Newton, the owner of the Middleton Ranch that had been burned down, and Jim Roberts, who had spied the Graham allies coming up on the camp in the recent skirmish. One source goes so far to say that Ed Tewksbury himself joined this posse, but I kind of doubt this. Even if Mulvenon was more than a little Tewksbury-leaning, there is no way he would have openly allowed Ed in on this little excursion. At the same time that this posse was coming in from the west, another one was riding in from the east. Joe McKinney, deputy sheriff for Apache County, didn't have any authority over Pleasant Valley, but he could stray from his jurisdiction if hot on the hills of fleeing criminals. As luck would have it, McKinney was chasing down some train robbers when he stopped in Snowflake to add more men to his posse. One of those he enlisted was 19-year-old Osmer Flake, the son of William J. Flake, whom we have mentioned several times now. And I bring up Osmer because his recollections are one of the primary sources we have for what's about to happen. So now with a couple more men, the total being around six so far as I can determine, McKinney kept heading west when they ran into fellow deputy Jim Houck. In case you've forgotten, Houck is the man who took the blame for killing Billy Graham, saying that it had all been some tragic misunderstanding, which was possibly a cover story for someone else doing the killing. So yeah, we did just add yet another staunch Tewksbury partisan to the mix. Houck told McKinney that he had warrants for several men, all Graham partisans, wouldn't you know it, who were down in Pleasant Valley. He also brought news that Mulvenon was already on his way there, so he suggested that the two posses combine forces for one giant operation. Forgetting all about the train robbers, seriously, they are never mentioned again, McKinney, Halk, and the others pushed on to the Hagler Ranch, which sat on the northern edge of Pleasant Valley. And so the two arms of the law met up on the afternoon of September 21st. Mulvenon had been cautious on his approach to Pleasant Valley so far, with some accounts saying that he had ordered his men to take hostage anyone they ran across so that no one could spread the word about their arrival. 
McKinney had not been taking those kind of precautions and noted that a man had seen his group and had headed on towards the valley. Mulvedin is said to have replied, quote, Five or six men don't bother those fellas. I was in there a short time ago with that number of men with me, and they came right into my camp and made their big talks of what they would do and what they wouldn't do, and I saw that I had the worst of it, and I denied having any warrants for them. End quote. However, based on this intel, the sheriff decided that he could put that attitude to some good use and so devised a stratagem. Around 3 a.m. the next morning, Mulvenin took his men and rode to the Charlie Perkins store, which was nothing but a half-finished small rock building. Still under the cover of darkness, Mulvenin and his men hid themselves behind those unfinished rock walls. Meanwhile, McKinney and his men also took off before dawn, cutting a wide arc so that they would approach the store in broad daylight, but looked like they were coming up from the south. The idea here was for the smaller posse to be seen and then hopefully approached by one of the two sides to either intimidate them or to find out their business, but then they would be surprised by Mulvenin's secret forces. Unfortunately, this part of the plan didn't really pan out. McKinney's men made it to the store and they stopped for a bit, but no one came to see them or ask them their business. Quickly vaulting to plan B, McKinney put one of Mulvenin's men on his own horse and then his party rode off, making it seem like the only posse in town was leaving, which would put everyone at ease and maybe then they would fall into Mulvenin's waiting net. This new strategy produced the desired result. According to one newspaper account from the time, which definitely must be taken with a grain of salt, two shots were heard coming from the Al Rose Ranch, which was answered by another three shots coming from the Graham homestead. And soon enough, two riders were seen approaching the store. According to McKinney, who was hiding behind the half-built walls with the rest, these men made a little loop of the store before approaching it. When they were about 10 to 15 steps away from the building, Mulvenin stepped out of a doorway, yelling for them to put their hands up. The two riders, Johnny Graham and Charlie Blevins, instead did the other thing. They spurred their horses and reached for their guns. A quick blast from Mulvenin's shotgun killed Graham's horse, while fire from the rest of the posse made short work of the rest. Blevins was definitely dead, with one estimate being that he'd been shot eight times, though it could have been less. Halk made a move toward Blevins's body, and McKinney actually called out instructions for Halk not to keep shooting him. Halk replied that he wasn't planning to unless Blevins made a play at something. But the man was already dead, and it's entirely possible that Halk might have been seeking some revenge for the death of John Tewksbury. Johnny Graham was badly injured, and it was clear to everyone that he was going to die. McKinney gave the dying man some water while Mulvenin questioned him. The account goes that the sheriff asked, quote, Johnny, why didn't you put your hands up when I told you to? Didn't you know me? At this, Graham shook his head no, causing Mulvenin to spit out, He knows he's a damn liar. He knew me. The sheriff then told Johnny what he already knew. He was a goner and could slip off to the afterlife at any moment. That being the case, Johnny should tell him right now where his brother Tom was, so he could fetch him and have the two brothers together for Johnny's last breath. 
Afterward, Tom would be free to ride off and Mulvenin would not try to arrest him. This could have been genuine mercy for a dying man on Mulvenin's part, but to me, it kind of feels like more of an interrogation tactic, so that's the way I take it. And apparently Johnny did too, as he swore up and down that Tom wasn't even in Pleasant Valley. After two or three more hours of struggling, Johnny Graham became the next casualty of the Pleasant Valley War. But even after this shootout, the posse's work wasn't done yet. They'd killed two men, but that didn't scratch the surface of all the men who had turned out for one side or the other. And having the sympathies that he did, Mulvenin next directed his men to head toward the Graham Ranch. As they were approaching the homestead, some of their men with binoculars were able to spot three individuals in the process of saddling horses and then heading out of the area at top speed. In his account, Osmer Flake begged Mulvenin to let him and a few men give chase, but the sheriff declined saying that he didn't want to risk any more killing that day. These escaping men were none other than Tom Graham, so Johnny's last act on earth had been covering for his brother, their hot-headed nephew, Lewis Parker, and a third man who was alternatively described as having the name of Adams or William Bonner. Having let these men slip away, Mulvenin and his posse then spread out in a line and approached the Graham cabin, arms at the ready. They were met by a woman who claimed that the only ones at home were her husband, Joe Ellington, who had been injured in the skirmish with Tewksbury forces just the week beforehand, and a Mexican man named Miguel Apodaca. The sheriff told the woman to return home and that he didn't want either of those men. Having struck out at the Graham Ranch, Mulvenin then pressed on to the house of Al Rose, as staunch a Graham partisan as there ever was. The story goes that they got within a hundred yards of the homestead and then called for Al to come out and face them. Rose, a tough immigrant from Sweden with maybe more bravado than sense, yelled back, quote, If you want anything here, come and get it. End quote. Everyone in the posse naturally assumed that this meant Rose was asking for a shootout, so they all dismounted and readied their arms to oblige him. It's about this point that Ed Rose, apparently the smarter of the two brothers, came out yelling, Don't shoot! End quote. There would be no trouble. Come right down to the house. Al was just trying one of his bluffs, end quote. So remember, kids, the lesson here is don't try to play chicken with trigger-happy 19th century Western law enforcement. After taking Rose into custody for the burning of the Milton Ranch, Mulvenin's posse next moved on to the Tewksbury homestead. McKinney here says that Mulvenin told him that the Tewksburys were willing to be taken into custody for the killing of Hamp Blevins and John Payne during the shootout that had started this latest round of violence. And it seems that this was true because when Mulvenin rode out of the valley, it was with Ed and Jim Tewksbury and their allies Jim Roberts, George Newton, and Jake Lawfer. It was while being taken into custody that Roberts made the offhand comment that with everyone else being dead or rounded up, Tom Graham could come back to Pleasant Valley and have his run of the place. That's when Jim Tewksbury made his comment about no damn man could kill his brother and leave him to be eaten by the hogs and live within a mile and a half of him. And I want you to remember Jim's attitude because, as always, it will come back into play later. 
author Eduardo Obregan Pagan writes that Tom would actually sneak back to his cabin that night, and it's only then that he learned of Johnny's death earlier that day. According to this account, those at the cabin were so badly scared by the presence of Mulvenin and his men that they actually begged Tom to leave, saying that the cabin was being watched by some 75 men. A disgusted Tom would write in a letter to his sister that he told them to keep their shirts on while he grabbed some food and his gold watch. He also then had them pack all of the brothers' possessions into a trunk before heading off again. Lewis Parker, the Graham's nephew, would never be spotted in Arizona again. Despite his, shall we say, misspent youth, he was a rustler and had participated in nearly all the major confrontations of the Pleasant Valley War. In the following years, he apparently went straight, as they say, and settled down in New Mexico. Tom, on the other hand, headed toward the Salt River Valley while contemplating the next move. McKinney's account of this bloody day ends with the ominous line that the deaths at the Perkins store, quote, ended the war proper, but as one of the participants said, there will be quite assassination going on here for some time to come, end quote. The day following the shooting, everyone was taken to Payson for the legal gears to start moving. The coroner's jury found that Charlie Blevins and Johnny Graham had been killed by the sheriff when trying to serve a warrant, so no further inquest was needed. Al Rose was charged with arson in the case of the Milton Ranch, but there was a distinct lack of evidence, and if we believe amateur historian Jinx Pyle, the judge had been at the ranch when it burned, so he couldn't indict without implicating himself. Now, in early October 1887, Jim and Ed Tewksbury were also arraigned for the murder charge from the killing of Hamp Blevins and John Payne in August. However, the defendants made bail, and the trial would be moved, delayed, postponed, and just put off for this or that reason until 1889, when the prosecution would just drop the case due to a lack of evidence. The legal wheels, which had just barely gotten going, may have screeched to a halt suddenly, that didn't mean the war had come to an end. Al Rose, though cleared with the law, had one fatal flaw to him. His mouth. The Swedish immigrant and Civil War veteran had a gruff personality that tended to rub people the wrong way. He had actually nicknamed himself Shoot 'em Up Dick of Outlaw Valley, if that gives you any insight into his personality. Now add this to the fact that during the violence that haunted 1887, from the killing of the Nameless Shepherd in February to the killing of Johnny Graham in September, he had a front row seat and was a major player in most of the goings-on. But then, in the wake of the killing of John Tewksbury, Al had apparently gone around joking about there being one more widow in the valley, referencing Marianne Tewksbury. He also proclaimed quite loudly that he knew exactly who had killed Hamp, Blevins, John Payne, and Billy Graham. So, I don't suppose that it comes as much of a surprise to hear that Rose is not going to survive two months after getting out of that patient courtroom. Rose's death happened on November 1st, but you'll see two different stories out there. 
The first is that one day, after he had walked out of his home to feed his horses, he was ambushed by eight or nine masked men, whom the key witness either could not or would not identify. The witness in this case was a man named Louis Naglin, who claimed he was neutral in the conflict and that he was just out helping his friend Al. Naglin would actually say that this was supposed to be Rose's last roundup of the animals as he was preparing to leave Pleasant Valley with his family forever. Anyway, these masked men fired 20 shots at Rose, with 11 of them striking the man down. Supposedly, in later years, Ed Tewksbury confided in Deputy McKinney the name of the man who had taken the lead in killing Rose. But this has been much disputed, and as we saw in the case of Billy Graham, it's possible Ed was passing the buck for something that he himself had actually done. But the second version of this story is that there was no shooting. Instead, the men resorted to that old standby of vigilante justice, lynching. Okay, so in this telling, the masked men rode up and surprised Rose while he was trying to collect firewood or to tend to his horses. And again, it's more than likely that they didn't wear any mask and that Naglin was trying to save his own hide by not identifying them. They supposedly tried to hang him too, but he pled for his life, saying that he hadn't taken any sides and was not an enemy. Apparently, this rolled above the presumably high DC on his persuasion check because the group decided not to kill him for being with bad company like they had planned. However, they did threaten to come back and finish the job should Naglin ever spill the beans about who was there that day. Accounts do seem to indicate that Naglin would clam up when asked about Rose's death, making sure that no one had any reason to come and see him. However Rose's death happened, Pleasant Valley resident and Tewksbury friend Bill Colkert said it best when he observed, quote, it was Rose's tongue that got him killed, end quote. But this death was not an isolated incident. William Bonner, who may have been the third man that had fled with Tom Graham and Lewis Parker in September, was later found buried in the sagebrush, just 15 feet from a well-traveled road near Tucson. Investigators determined that he had been ambushed, and the blame naturally fell to Tewksbury allies. And that's actually more than likely. Back up in Pleasant Valley, those remaining Tewksbury allies, or just people who wanted law and order, had had enough. Under the direction of a man named Jesse Ellison, the ominously named Committee of Fifty was organized sometime over the summer of 1887. Not much is known about this committee, which probably numbered more around 30, as everyone agreed to take the secret to their graves. All we have to go on are some scraps of information preserved by the next generation, which would still be very reticent to speak about their father's activities into the mid-20th century. But what we do know is that they were determined to stamp out wrestling in Pleasant Valley once and for all, and as the story of Al Rose demonstrates, they weren't bothered by such compunctions as the law. We get a few various threats against strangers coming into the valley, and it seems that all of the Graham allies, or just rustlers in general, decided to quit the area under the threat of violence. As author Daniel Justin Herman writes, by December 1887, it looked like the war had wound down for the moment. By Herman's account, 
assuming that the war had begun in earnest with the supposedly beheaded shepherd in February 1887, then the death toll numbered 11 people by December 1st. Here he is counting the shepherd, Hamp Blevins and John Payne killed during the shootout at the Middleton cabin, Billy Graham ambushed and shot, John Tewksbury and William Jacobs killed by the Grahams, Harry Middleton killed during the skirmish between the two sides, Charlie Blemons and Johnny Graham killed by Mulvenon and his posse, and finally William Bonner and Al Rose. Depending on which way you lean, you can also add Mart Blemons to this list, as well as Samuel Scholl, a sheepherder who was killed on top of the rim. There's also the rumor of three to four anonymous Graham fighters killed during engagements with the Tewksbury's, and then there are even more unverified claims about men vanishing or this or that person killing this or that partisan from one side or the other. At the end of the day, we have a body count for a 10-month span in 1887 that is at least 11 people and maybe as many as 38. I don't think I have to tell you how insane that is for something that essentially started as a courtroom drama. Speaking of which... Obregón Pagán breaks down the legal proceedings for this period, saying that between 1883 and 1888, Pleasant Valley residents filed criminal complaints against each other or were implicated in criminal complaints 16 times. When you figure a minimum of two hearings for each complaint, that means everyone in the valley was a witness or defendant in more than 30 cases over the course of five years many of them happening simultaneously. And just in case you were wondering, the Grahams initiated seven of these cases, the Tewksbury's two, and the Territory of Arizona five. The rest came from other Valley residents who were allies of one side or the other. But there is one last incident to finish up the war in Pleasant Valley itself. The Hanging of James Stott. Jamie Stott, as he was called, had been born into a rich Massachusetts family where he had a privileged upbringing, including a private school in New Hampshire and part of a Harvard education. Lured west by the call of a venture, he had learned the ropes of ranching, literally, in Texas before getting his own brand and coming to Arizona in October 1885. He settled on top of the Mogollon Rim, smack dab in the middle of the Hashknife Cowboys and next to the Mormons. In early 1887, he bought a horse from a man in Pleasant Valley, but Jake Laufer, a Tewksbury ally who cameoed earlier in this episode, claimed it was stolen from him, and he put out a criminal complaint against Stott and a Graham partisan. This lawsuit went nowhere. Stott had a bill of sale, and the judge actually chided Laufer for bringing this as a criminal and not a civil case, but the charge of horse theft stuck to Stott in the worst possible way. He was already known to entertain hashknife employees at his house, something he did to keep on good terms with his neighbors, so for most people it wasn't a huge logical leap to connect Stott to rustlers and then to Graham partisans. Plus, there seems to have been some legitimate concerns about the origin of some of the livestock on his ranch, and there may have been a clear trail of rustlers going straight through his door. Then, in August 1888, during a warning of an Indian raid that had caused all Pleasant Valley residents to gather at the Perkins store, Laufer, who was off scouting, was shot in the arm while two other scouts claimed that they had been shot at. 
and these mystery shooters were said to have been seen going to Al Rose's old house, where they took supplies and then rode off again. Despite the scare going on at the time, Lawfer, who was crippled for life by the way, did not think he had been shot by Apache, and the blame fell again on Stott. In a show of bravery or stupidity, Stott refused to leave his land or to be intimidated by anyone or anything. When warned by Will Barnes that people had it out for him, Stott is said to have patted his six-shooter and quipped, quote, I'd love to see the color of the man's hair who can get the drop on me, end quote. And with that line out there in the universe, you just know that karma was going to come back and bite him in a big way. Lawfer swore out another complaint against Stott, this time adding in two of his ranch hands and upping the charge to attempted murder. Early on the morning of August 11th, 1888, Stott arose and went about his morning chores, including getting wood to light the breakfast fire. However, as he stepped outside his house, Deputy Jim Houck was waiting with a loaded Winchester and orders for Stott to freeze. Here we have to question Halk a little bit because he claimed to have a warrant for Stott's arrest, just not on him because, uh, I left it in my other coat? Seriously, Halk said that he had left the coat at his main camp and the warrant wasn't there, so we should just take his word. Stott, apparently, was unperturbed by any of this, and he calmly invited Halk and the two men with him to come in and join him and his ranch hands for breakfast. After what we now know was his last meal, Stott and the others decided to come along peacefully. Though I should note that some versions have the third soon-to-be victim being brought to the scene by a party of nearly 30 men who joined with Halk at that time. According to Halk, his party with the captives in tow had only gotten about 10 miles out before they were set upon by a gang of masked anonymous individuals who demanded they hand over their prisoners. For those of you still paying attention to this, the idea of quote-unquote masked men doing the killing probably rings a bit hollow, and we really have to question Hulk's account because, as I have repeatedly said, he was a huge Tewksbury partisan, and it's more than likely that he just turned the men over to some waiting compatriots. Interestingly enough, one of the men rumored to be among this group was none other than former scout and interpreter turned gun for hire Tom Horn. And this is something I hinted at back when I did my all too brief sketch of him in episode 113. Chained together with their hands bound, the three captives could not stop what happened next. We know that all three men were lynched and would be found days later, but the exact events around the hanging have become the stuff of legend. Some versions say that Stott cried out that he would fight every man there if he was turned loose. He screamed and cursed every man, some by name, as they repeatedly hoisted him and lowered him, telling him to admit to his crimes. With each pseudo-hanging, he grew progressively weaker until he finally died, without confessing to anything. It's said that the limb of the tree he was hung from was sawn into by the rope from this repeated hanging. The lynching of Stott and his two ranch hands in August 1888 would be one of the last large-scale acts of violence in connection with the Pleasant Valley War, though the self-appointed Committee of 50 continued to operate and drive out any perceived rustlers. 
But this is still not the end of the conflict. We do, however, have to leave the familiar setting and travel south. Because it won't be until four years later, in 1892, when a violent murder on the streets of Tempe and the protracted legal drama that followed became the bloody coda to this great black eye on Arizona's history. So join me next week when Tom Graham will be gunned down in broad daylight and Ed Tewksbury put on trial in what would prove to be the final event that will wrap up the Pleasant Valley War. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.